Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukaloo. Anthony. This week, my friend Arthur is back to help me cover Arya and what is probably the most action-packed chapter in this book so far. But before we get to Arya and Arthur, I got an email from a woman named Carol, and she has asked me to reach out to David Peterson, David's the inventor of Dothraki, to help her with a tattoo she wants. She would like me to have David translate a phrase that she can tattoo on her body. So I've reached out to David and he's happy to do this, but I thought before I have David on, I would solicit more emails of this type. If you would like a Dothraki or a High Valyrian or some other Game of Thrones adjacent language tattooed on your body, send your phrase to book at baldmove.com. I will read your email to him And David will help us out by translating the phrase, and then you can, of course, find the tattoo artist of your choice to put it on your person. Okay, so that interview with David is coming up in a few weeks, so you've got a little bit of time. Book at baldmove.com, and we will help you with your Dothraki body art. All right, here is my friend and yours, Arthur Jamfa. Arthur, how would you describe your accent? Um, That's a very good question. I, I'd say I'd say it's a it's mainly a London accent. Um, the fact of of growing up surrounded by a lot of people who spoke French means there's a bit of a French tinge there, but that that varies. I think I think uh-huh. there's this periods where that French tinge sort of disappears. So I spend a lot of time with British people, uh-huh. and then there's this period where it comes back. Um, there there was a time I used to have an American accent when I was quite young. <laughs> no, and sometimes no, sometimes no, no, the no. the origins of that American accent come come out in some pronunciation. And how, how did you come by your American accent? Well, you, you'd be surprised how many children moved to to the UK uh, very young. I moved when I was uh, six, right? And uh, learn yeah. watching television and then end up having an American accent, even though they live in London. <laughs> it's it's really terrifying how your culture is just all-encompassing. <laughs> what, what shows were you watching that gave you your... Your American accent. Uh, friends. Um, I was watching uh-huh. a lot of Disney Channel, Nickelodeon. Sure. I mean, really anything on TV has an American accent, <laughs> realistically. Um, do you code switch? Um, yes, all the time. I studied code switching at university, actually. It's a very interesting thing. When do you most notice yourself code switching? Oh, I, you know, I, I so basically because I studied, I studied at university and other students that I... Um, you know, work with and, and share a space with also study this. And so basically some of them interview, interviewed me to kind of ask about uh-huh. these code twisting things. And I, I realized I've never spent a day, I've probably never spent a day in my life and for the last probably 15 years 
where I haven't spoken two languages that day. Right. Oh, that's so I code switch yeah. every day, all yeah, the time. Yeah. Now you're um, we're, we're catching you in Taiwan at the moment, correct? Yes. All right. So I was on my looking at my my statistics right before you jumped on, and I saw that this podcast has 136 downloads in Taiwan. Oh wow! So I wanted to know if you if you could. I'm going to put you on the spot. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. You're there. St- you're in Taiwan studying a different language. It's Mandarin. So the the language the language yeah. of Taiwan is the language of China, and that is yeah. yeah. Uh, that is so Mandarin I was Chinese. I was hoping that maybe you could say hello and welcome to all of the listeners in Taiwan. Uh, yes, I would put. Okay, ni hao. <laughs> You could have just given a, a recipe for sourdough bread. I, I would have no idea. I mean, I think considering the, the how, how good my tones are, I probably have. So. <laughs> so have we ever covered an Arya chapter before? No, we haven't. Because we normally, I normally bring you on for Tyrion. Yeah, a little bit of Bran. A little bit uh, of Bran, a little bit of Tyrion. This is our first Arya chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bring me in to talk about the children of the New Arctic people, which I think you've really, <laughs> you've got my expertise <laughs> right on there. Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to start with the synopsis of the chapter. Yorin's company of misfits follows the river, finding dead bodies and empty villages. Arya objects to the idea of sleeping in an abandoned holdfast near the god's eye, but Yorin's decision stands. They fortify the holdfast as well as they can and take turns on watch. That night, Arya wakes suddenly to a wolf howl. Soon after Kurtz's horn sounds alerting them to danger, the Kingsmen surround the Holdfast. Armory Lorch and Yorn exchange words before the fighting begins. Arya hacks and stabs at the top of the wall as Lorch's men try to climb up it. It is clear to Yorn that they are no match for the soldiers, and he instructs Arya and the other to flee down the trap door in the barn. Before she escapes, she tries to help the orphan girl and brings Jack and Hagar an axe to free himself. Arthur Jampa, uh, how can uh, how can we begin today? Um, that's a good question. That's, that's a it's a bad it's a bad way to do that. Let me try that again. <laughs> Arthur Jampa, uh, what do you bring to the table today? I wanted to talk about uh, George Martin's representation rep- representation of violence because uh, I think it's very cool. Uh, but that's some boring analysis stuff. So let's talk. Let's start talking about the fact that the Night Watch is not neutral at all. And I think it's nonsense. Oh. I think I think this idea that you know Yorin's like, oh, we're getting we're getting attacked because we're neutral, but then he's quite literally trying to protect the daughter of Ned. So I'm not having it. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So yeah, he does give lip service to this notion that the Night's Watch is neutral. And I think that on the face of it, I think that the company company line is that it is neutral, right? Yeah, in in, in theory, yeah. In theory, but also, you know, you've got some southern southern folk up at the wall, and some northern folk up at the wall, and I think that there's a an air of neutrality, even though it doesn't really work in the real world. Or, or am I overstating that? 
I think yes. I think I think there's an there's an era of neutrality, like as we know, they used to not be neutral, uh, and then they got beaten into submission. Yeah. Uh and all of the castles facing southward were, were destroyed and now and now they, they have sworn to never get involved in the wars of um between kings and, and yes. different lords b- uh, below the wall. But that doesn't mean that they really do try and do a thing or two to help out the Starks. They they had they seem to have a deep loyalty, deep relationship with the Starks more I think than you're right. any of the other lords. And when when the kingdom is not broken up in a total civil war, mm-hmm. then I think, yeah, they are sort of neutral. They don't really care about kind of two little lords fighting or or if you, I don't know, if, if two southern big um, lords are having a, a, a big rivalry. But when it comes to the kingdom being as divided as it, as it is, and mm-hmm. you have a clear, clear faction led by the Starks, sure, they're not going to, you know, raise, they're not going to, like... The Starks can't raise a banner and make them come and fight for them, but they will. Like when Ned Stark's head gets cut off, mm-hmm. Yorin does kind of the first thing that he tells Arya is, "Well, I knew your your father, you know, uh, and I respect him, and therefore well, I'm even more you. than that, before Ned gets clipped, he brings a message directly to Ned and says that your brother is my brother, meaning Benjen, and exactly. so he feels like." I owe you something because I view Benjen as my brother in arms. And so he does feel almost family with Ned in a way. They're stepbrother in arms. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. They are. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, so that's interesting. So would he have helped Arya if she was like, a southern lord's daughter. So I, the example I wrote down was Tommen, because they do help out Gendry, but that does feel quite anti-Lannister still. Like if 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 let's say we have a new reality where uh, Ned Stark reveals the true identity of the of the Nas- Lannister children, mm-hmm. and, and Tommen needs to disappear, would he have cut Tommen's hair and kind of put him in some raggy clothes mm. and dragged mm. him up into the up onto the wall? If you know Stark was saying hunt them down. I, I mean, which Stark wouldn't have done, but you know, in that reality, I don't think he would have done the same for the Lannister children. Hmm. Hmm. So Yorn is a—he—he's uh, really allied with the North, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, I think he is. Do you think that that's the case for the Night's Watch in general? Um. Again, again, I think the Night's Watch in general are loosely allies of the North. It's—it's it's harder to say with the, with with Night's Watch in general, because if it really was a true ally, then it would, you know, stand up and fight for the Starks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in the same way that Yorin isn't ready to, maybe not ready to fight for them quite literally, they are, they are quite loose allies and they will try and try and do what they can to help them out. Yeah, I think, I think this is right. You've hit something here that's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I do think that there's something about, to me, Yorin presents as sort of, the ideals of the Night's Watch. He's not the kind of guy who like says one thing and does another. He really believes in the virtue of the Night's Watch. He believes in the nobility of the institution. I think that there's part of him that actually does believe he's acting neutral. And it happens to be that these Southern soldiers are not 
respecting the institution of the Night's Watch. And that's why he's so hell-bent on protecting the, the men and one girl under his care. So I think that there's another way into this. I feel like maybe the North respects the Night's Watch and the institution of the Night's Watch and shows more loyalty to the Night's Watch. And and, and so Yorin's, Yorin's really acting selfishly at the end of the day. It's not that he has an affinity for the Winterfell. It's that the Winterfell has shown a certain amount of devotion to the, the Night's Watch, and he has a memory of this. If you really kind of push that logic to its conclusion, mm-hmm. then you could say, well, okay, sure, technically they're neutral. But if you're going to be a realist from an yeah. analysis perspective, you're going to say, well, they're in the North. I know the ties that they have to the North. Mm-hmm. I know they probably are going to be a bit more loyal to the North. If they're held up in a holdfast, we're going to ask them to go down and let us check one by one all the people that they're, they're bringing mm-hmm. up. We're not mm-hmm. going to you know kill them, but we're going to check at least that they're not they're not sneaking people up. And if they don't do that, we're not going to kill them all. Because, yeah. you know, I know that, that you know, Benjamin Stark is quite le- literally part of that leadership. So I don't trust them. Right. And I think, I think the Lannisters are not, I, when I when I first read the chapter, I was like, well, this is nonsense. How dare they do that? You know, these evil Lannisters. And actually, like often with uh, George Martin's books, you take a step back and you read it again. You think, oh, actually, no. Um, what the Lannisters are doing Maybe they didn't even know what they were doing, but it was fair because actually hmm. Yorin wasn't quite as neutral as he makes himself and his followers believe. Hmm. I like this. I like this a lot. Now, Yorin gets himself killed because of it in this chapter. Well, I think, I mean, it's off page, but we, we imagine after this chapter, everyone assumes that Yorin is dead. Yeah, we find out he's dead later, don't we? And is it, okay, so do, why does he die? Does he die because he's a stubborn old goat? Or does he die because he has this loyalty to the North? Or do he die be, because he, he'll he be damned if he betrays the ideals of the Night's Watch? Well, look, it's hard. It's, it, Yorin was in a tough spot, I think. Like, let's look at his options at hand. He could have opened the, the holdfast and let them kind of walk through and check everything. Yeah. I'm not convinced necessarily that the men would have killed them all. Um, but that's a real have, possibility, given what's a been real possibility, doing, right? Yeah, a hundred percent a real possibility. They could last men absolutely could have also kind of questioned them uh, and noticed, and because we know they're on the hunt for Gendry and Arya, um, and although they might they wouldn't have expected Arya to be here, but certainly Gendry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I yeah, I'm noticing I'm saying uh, Gendry. Because I've been listening to the audiobook and they said ah, Gendry in the uh-huh, audiobook. Uh-huh. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> uh, or Gendry, whatever you want to call him. I don't care. Uh, yeah. You know, everyone's got to. Uh, there's so many different names and so many different pronunciations of these names. I just I just let people roll with whatever they're comfortable with. Because I'm sure I'm getting <laughs> the, the names wrong half the time anyway. Um, yeah. And so. So I think so that, that was that was a risk. The fact they they come in and then they find these people who are trying to sneak up, mm-hmm. or they could just all take them to be prisoners uh, and brought them to Harrenhal. Hmm. So I think yeah, I think he's in a tough spot. Was fighting the right thing to do? Probably not because his odds were his odds were essentially zero percent of winning that. Um, 
so I don't know. And in, in his position, I think I would have opened up the doors because he's got he's got nothing to lose. And I think he he was a bit stubborn in the sense of like, if I'm gonna go out, I'd rather go out fighting, you know, mm-hmm. which is I think not good leadership ultimately. Well, I mean, I, I guess the question is how much, how well can they actually defend these walls? I don't know. And uh, well, if you had if you had soldiers, maybe Arya quits herself pretty well. I I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, she was she's been training a little bit in combat, perhaps more than than her friends. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. First two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV Plus, and we'll have a pair of podcasts quantumly linked ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. I wrote down that I am starting to think, especially in this chapter, this area's qualities and abilities are slightly unbelievably adept, mm-hmm. especially for a person of her age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I've, and I've wrote down, I think, four main places where she, she holds such a, a good qualities. Number one is the, the determination and bravery. Number two is intelligence. Yeah. 
Number three is loyalty. And number four is resourceful resourcefulness. Okay. Um and we can Did you say bravery? Yeah, I said determination and bravery is the first okay, one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and I just I just I, I struggle to believe that someone with you know with the predisposition and the environment that Aria had would have qualities to this extent. So, all right. So you're suggesting she's too young to be as brave as she is. Well, yeah. So she, so she, she's incredibly determined and brave, right? Mm-hmm. So she's, she really runs through this hellish environment and keeps kind of her head on her shoulders. Um, she's also unbelievably intelligent. Um, despite so in in the series, right? They make Arya perhaps more intelligent than she is in the books. Hmm. Like she, I, I noticed in, in in the series that she seems to know the banners and history of every house. Yeah. Uh, like when she's questioned by Tywin Harrenhal, uh, in the series, she kind of creates a few fake stories associated with her fake personalities, and with that, she kind of lists off the banners of these houses and what they represent in their histories, in a way that Arya in the books really did not pay attention in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she's being taught, she didn't like reading books. She doesn't know any of that. She really only cares about fighting and catching cats. Um, and so kind of her constant intelligence and, and her ability to see the big picture, which again brings us to her loyalty because she really continues to stay loyal to her back to her background, her family, her friends. And I mean, in her in her spot, I think I might have stopped caring which side I was fighting for and mm-hmm. kind of understood that, you know, you're fighting for yourself. But she really keeps an eye on that bigger picture in a way that it's really difficult for a child to do. And finally, with resourcefulness, I mean, she grew, did grow up a rich aristocrat in a mm-hmm. castle. So, sure, she was quite independent and a bit playful. But to the extent that she's able to to pull out as much as she does with the few resources she finds, when you've been surrounded by resources, to understand how to allocate them properly like that, I think it demands a bit more of an understanding of her. Your siblings are older, younger? Older. How much? Um, um, Why am I hesitating? Five and eight years. Because I was just going to say, for people that have siblings that are much older than them, sometimes they grow up a lot faster. And I think that it's possible. It's like sometimes you'll meet like a kid who's got like two older brothers, but the older brothers are like a lot older. And so that kid is mm-hmm. kind of like a little adult walking around. <laughs> um, sometimes you meet kids like that. And I might have been a kid like that. Um, <laughs> so I feel, I I don't know. I mean, I, there's something about Arya that makes me feel like she's been studying Jon Snow and she's been studying Rob and she's been sneaking around you know, seeing what the boys do and practicing what the boys do behind their back. I just, I feel like she's the kind of person who's adventurous and ready to, you know, jump before she thinks about jumping. Yeah, no, I do as well. I, I certainly do. I think she's a very gifted child. I think she's a very adventurous child. Um, But I guess there's a difference between that and something as fundamental as, because okay, I think I think there's absolutely an argument to say I think this this little girl is quite brave because 
she's always wanted to get out and kind of have adventure. Uh-huh. And so that kind of leads to her having a coping mechanism where she just she just throws herself into situations and try to get to the other side. Um but it's with with kind of with intelligence, it's hard to argue that someone who really didn't work on their intelligence as much. I mean, certainly Sarah Farrell educated her, but before that, she really was interested in. She wasn't really interested in, in thinking about getting smarter in a way. You know, um, she says she's and, good at numbers. In fact, I think that um, that's true. Actually, I forgot about that. That's I think Sansa true. says that she either she does or Sansa says something like. Uh, Arya hates, you know, certain things that she's not good at. Like she's not, a, she's not as strong as a, of a reader as her sister. But as far as numbers goes, Arya's pretty good with numbers. So I don't think she's entirely bad at school. Uh, you know what? I'm just gonna. I'm, you're you're never gonna hear. <laughs> I'm always gonna defend Arya, no matter what. You're never gonna <laughs> catch me not defending Arya. I am a. I am an unapologetic. Arya apologist and <laughs> I'm just I'm gonna defend her to the death that's I, I've realized that about myself I'm just gonna I'm team Arya and I'm just gonna bleed Arya the whole time never gonna be objective um Anthony what do you think about episode three of the last of us <laughs> yeah I can throw curveballs too <laughs> What do I think about episode three of The Last of Us? Yeah, yeah. Um, is this the the Bill and Frank episode we're talking about? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, it is. Uh, I think it's one of the most brilliant bits of television I've ever seen. Right. Um, what is Bill really good at? Right, resource management. Well, he's he's also he's a very adept survivalist. We'll say. Right. Exactly. Uh huh. Because he was obsessed with this, and he worked on it for a very long time. And he hates people in general. He hates. And he hates. He hates everyone. Well, to be fair, so does Aria. But my point is, I don't think Aria has kind of that resource management uh, mindset mm. because she just didn't grow up in an environment where she needed to learn what resources existed, where to put them, and where could be the most efficient. Resourcefulness is really something that's. Give me an example of her resourcefulness in this particular chapter. Um, the way that she's so efficient at finding a solution for um, the burning of the, the car. Look at her surroundings. Immediately going for the, the one thing they need, which is an axe. And you know, not trying to do herself, just throwing at them and jumping below the, the ground. She goes and gets the axe. She throws the axe in. And then she... Actually, you know the axe is kind of crucial to what happens next in her narrative. I mean, she 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 she'll show that resourcefulness a lot more later on, um, in coming chapters. At Harren Hall, she'll she'll show it a lot. Uh, with very little things, she'll she'll manage to do a, to do a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that perhaps someone who didn't need to survive beforehand, I struggle to believe she can. And then when they're in, they're in the woods trying to survive, the same thing happens to a lesser extent. So maybe you could say she's learning on the way. Um, but like, I'm just going to say I'm skeptical. But I'm always okay. skeptical. So All right, this is I, you caught me. You caught me at an interesting moment in my life, Arthur. Mm-hmm. So just yesterday, my wife, my lovely wife, took me to a museum in Columbus, Ohio. 
And at that museum, in addition to, you know, some great works of art, they had a special exhibit featuring the prolific work of children's author and illustrator Maurice Sendak. Are you familiar with Maurice Sendak? Uh, no. Where the Wild Things Are would be uh, an example of Maurice Sendak. On the night, nope. Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another. You, you're not familiar with Maurice Sendak? God, this is embarrassing. No, I'm not. Okay, you, this, he's, he's a he's a he's a brilliant. He was. He's now deceased. He was a brilliant children's author uh, for picture books and okay and and, and fantastic illustrator. And one thing that Maurice Sendak really believed about children was that um, that people think too little of them, and people try to shield them from scary things. And in reality, what his his view was was that children are absolutely more brave than you think that they are, and it's really the the parents who are afraid on behalf of their children. So when I read the chapter like this, I think Maury Sendak, I think, yeah, of course, uh, she's a little bit too grown up there. But a lot of children, when they're faced with danger, are able to do and be brave in surprising ways. That's my answer. I guess we can call it the Narnia theory. <laughs> sure, sure. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I hear a lot of people here, here in defense of the other view. I've heard people say that Arya is too wish fulfillment and maybe she presents in ways that are a little bit too adventurous and too brave and too smart to be realistic. I don't I don't tend to have that problem with Arya, but I, I totally get people who have that particular issue with Arya. The the series and the books differ on this point. I think she's a I think in the in the series from the get go, I kind of Believe it, even though it's it's hard. It's she's actually I think she's she's even more intelligent, and capable in, in in the series. Mm. I think that I kind of believe it because kind of that's true the whole time. But Ari in the book sometimes is a bit stupid. Um, <laughs> How old is she? I'm curious. What, 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 she's younger. Than what we're she. talking about here? I mean, let's see here. I want to say nine years old. I just look. Oh yeah, she's up. nine. Yeah, all right, I was right. So she's nine years old, yeah. What were you doing when you were nine years old, Arthur? I mean nothing very productive. I was a competitive <laughs> fencer. I was the third I was the thirtieth best fencer in the UK. <laughs> and you're telling me that you don't believe Arya's gonna chop the fingers off that guy. You were the thirtieth <laughs> best fencer in all of the well, UK. Well, of my age group. In my age group. In your oh, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't beating four. <laughs> wow, nine years old, You're Olympian, huh? Um, <laughs> very, very impressive for sure. Last, last time we were on, we found out that you were royalty, and now we found out that you were a nine-year-old Olympian. <laughs> um, all right, I want, I do want to talk about the violence in this chapter. Yes. So I this is a, a book called A Clash of Kings, and we're a good 200 pages in. I think this is the first legitimate action we're seeing in this book. Now, it's a long book, right? And we're going we're gonna to see some more mm-hmm. action. But 
I think that this is the first legit battle that we're seeing. And, you know, most famously, Martin is more, much more interested in the aftermath of the battle than he is with the battle. Yes. Um, in this case, we actually get some pretty horrific, you know, Arya's chopping off fingers, she's poking people. At one point, she, she sees a guy go down, and she wonders if she's the one that took the guy down or not. Mm-hmm. What was your impression of the violence in this chapter? I love how Martin represents violence and chaos and warfare. It's um, Tarantino-esque, I would yeah. say. It's yeah. the kind of the best way to describe it to someone who hasn't just read the, the chapter. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like this finger-chopping uh, slogan screaming absurdity of warfare. And you really, you can't stop but thinking, what are these knights losing life and limb over? I mean, what, like, what is, the absurdity is is so horrific, it's almost funny. Um, and you really have, like, blood spurts. I mean, one of the, one of the characteristic things about the way Tarantino represents uh, violence is that he gets these little, like, pods of blood. <laughs> and when you yeah. see this in Django Unchained, when he kind of shoots on the bad guy who's going mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. kind of that blood kind of shoots onto the cotton and like these really dramatic spurts of blood you shoot out and you have that in martin's writing as well um i think so and so yeah it's the, this kind of tarantino-esque idea of really highlighting the absurdity and exaggerating in a realistic way in a sense the the horror of violence in a way to kind of present it in a way that's perhaps more, more realistic. Yes, even within that. So you've got this massive backdrop of like a chaotic event. And yet, because it's from Arya's point of view, every now and again, you'll you'll get a very specific detail. Like she's on the top of yes. the wall and she sees a hand come over and grip the top of the wall because the guy's climbing the wall. And she notes that the hand is thick, you know, it's kind of stubby. She notes the hair of the hand and immediately she like steals herself and decides, well, I got to cut off that guy's fingers. So you get this very almost zoomed in image of a hand rather than just, you know, trying to describe the scene in mass. Every now and again, you'll see this very focused image like that and one of the things that i find really interesting is that at, at the start kind of that zoomed in perspective of warfare kind of reassures you you know it's it's, it's a bit of a slow build mm. because at first mm-hmm. it's quite straightforward right they're going to try and climb up chop their fingers off they'll fall off <laughs> right and kind of martin shows this kind of the absurdity of thinking your face in the hold fast because really quickly it descends into chaos and you don't really understand what's going on. Arya doesn't understand what's going on. And next thing you know, you're in, you're in literal hell, right? At the end of the chapter, she everything's burning, right? Everything's burning. It's complete chaos. Yeah. Um, You do not have the clarity that you had, that you had to start because you kind of really, you eased into the sense Mm -hmm. of chaos. The kind of Martin is trying to 
is allowing the reader to lose control over the narrative. And, and you and, feel and, and it. Exactly you're feeling it with every sense. You're, you, you, you can smell it, right? There's, you can absolutely smell what's happening. You can feel the heat of the fire. There's a lot of senses that go into this particular chapter. There's and this one the image end, of, of Gendry yeah. who's like put on his helm for the first time. And, and it's like he's been polishing it for weeks. And finally he puts it on his head. And now it's just like you see the orange fire reflected in the helm. And so it's it's a yeah. glow with this orange light. It, it's just it's I think it's a it's a lovely chapter. You don't see it very often. He does not do this very often. But when he does it, he does it pretty well. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I found really horrific is how funny it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I really was laughing at, at the way that, you know, she was screaming Winterfell while chopping people's heads <laughs> off. And, and and it's horrific, but it's also immensely funny. And it's funny because it's absurd. She's she's absolutely claiming herself, you know, claiming her flag, right? I found that a bit weird because, I mean, okay, if, if the hot pie says hot pie, which... <laughs> You know, <laughs> that um, is, that's more weird than shouting Winterfell. Yeah, you it's yell not, your own it's, name. It's, <laughs> it's also not his name, right? It's a nickname he got like three days ago. <laughs> it's not like if if we're saying that she says Winterfell because it's like somewhere deep inside her, and this is mm-hmm. a moment of of then why is he, is he saying he's hot pie? I mean, from our perspective, he's hot pie. But from his, well, I've got a theory about pie. this. All right, so how did he get that name? He got that name because his mother was a baker, and he would walk around flea bottom and yell hot pie. So that's the thing that he is most used to yelling. Oh. It's like muscle memory. <laughs> that is really funny. Okay, I'll have it. So yeah, she <laughs> yells Winterfell. Video. He yells hot pie. I don't know which. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's kind of funny. But yeah, like like I, as I was saying, I think it's funny because it's absurd and that's what Martin's I think is trying to do. I think he's trying mm. to show us kind of deep subtlety of of um of warfare in general being specifically a medieval warfare and yeah it works one of the things that i think i I think is really amazing is when she she literally describes the scene of of the burning and you can see the the donkey panicking and and the prisoners that she tries Mm -hmm. including jack and her guard that she frees and then as soon as she throws that um that axe to free the prisoners mm-hmm. and she jumps into the tunnel and it's fascinating that she goes into the dirt to escape from hell uh it's just a, a it's a beautiful symbolism of what aria does right which is the world's gone to hell it's the apocalypse mm-hmm. and so the only place she has to go is further down <laughs> but every time she climbs further down into the tunnels becomes more of a rat and that is her way of kind of living below the chaos. And then she kind of reemerges mm-hmm. uh, later, what well, we expect she will reemerge later on and when things kind of stabilize. Um, so, yeah, I thought I thought that when she says, oh, God, I've got dirt in my mouth, but at least dirt is life. And what's up there? That's hell. I yeah, thought, well, yeah, that's, that's right. exactly what she does again and again throughout these series. That's right. That's right. Notable introductions. Uh, Woth. Um We've heard a lot about the God's Eye. I think this may be the first time we actually are near the God's Eye, at least on the other side of the water. Mm-hmm. Maybe an introduction to Arya's warg abilities. It very well could be that we've got hints earlier. Um, but this is, a, for me, this is a clear indication of those. And I think that this may be an introduction to like 
honest to goodness action in this book. Are all of the uh, Stark children wargs? I think so. I, I think okay. I, I think the answer is probably no, but there's a reason why some do not develop those abilities, and those reasons usually have to do with whether or not the the wolf died or not. So wait, so you think maybe Sansa would have been a wolf? I think, yeah, I think if Lady didn't die, Sansa would be having wolf dreams. Interesting. I'll just run through it. So Rob, Rob is seemingly using Grey Wind to like scout out trails, and mm-hmm. this this actually does help him in some way strategically against Tywin. So there that's that's his indication. Yeah, the golden tooth, right? Yeah, so John, of course, I don't think we need to to make that case. Um Brand as well. Arya's going to have wolf dreams and um of course Bran is is probably the most clear indication. So Sansa is the outlier and she's the one Rick, who's Rickon as well. Rickon for is, sure. Rickon is. We can assume Rickon has. Yeah, he's become wolf super wolfy. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah. and also Rickon and and Bran have the same premonition dream at the end of the last book. Yeah, uh, maybe both green seers, uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, differences in the show. Uh, a lot of this doesn't happen. One of the key differences in this. In the show, which I really loved, was in the show, Yorn tells this story about how the, there was this older boy who killed his brother. You know, we've got something in common, me and you. You know that? I must have been a couple of years older than you. I saw my brother stabbed through the heart right on our doorstep. He wasn't much of a villain what skewered him. Willem, the lad's name was. He ran off before anyone could spit. And I just stood there, watching my brother die. Here's the funny part. I can't picture my brother's face anymore. But Willem, oh, he was a nice looking boy. He had good white teeth. Blue eyes, one of those dimpled chins all the girls like. I would think about him when I was working, when I was drinking, when I was having a shit. It got to the point where I would say his name every night before I went to bed. Willem, Willem, Willem. A prayer almost. One day, Willem came riding back into town. I buried an axe so deep into Willem's skull I had to bury him with it. Willem's horse got me to the wall and I've been wearing black ever since. That'll help you sleep, eh? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a story we get in the show that we do not get in the book, which I thought was kind of cool because 
it almost inspires Arya's, you know, list of names that she repeats to herself at nighttime. I think she in the show she gets that from Yorn. No, that's interesting. Departures, uh, Woth, uh, introduced and dies. Dauber, Dauber dies. Quile, Quile dies. And <laughs> I think Yorin probably dies. I think it, that's... It's, everyone in the story assumes Yorin died this night. Uh, mm-hmm. So we did not see yes. him actually be run through, but... I guess I, I want to talk about the... Um... Because you mentioned difference with the with the show, I think it's a shame that the show didn't represent this. I'm sure there's reasons why, but there's a few things here that I think the show kind of missed on, and partly one of one of them is kind of her climbing into a tunnel, which I think that symbolism is is lost in the show. She mm. doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. They do have her saving Jack and Hagar, which absolutely is necessary to the plot, and her kind of being separated from uh, having to leave the safety of being escorted by the Night's Watch. Yeah. But they also do have the whole fast. I think this idea that you're safe between big walls in the medieval world uh, is kind of stripped away in this chapter. And I think I have an understanding in the medieval world that if you're in a castle, you're fine. Uh, and clearly you're not. So, yeah, I like I think that. that you, I think that the walls help if you know how to defend them, right? So if you, if you were able yes. to man the walls, you could usually hold off a pretty big host if you could defend the walls and um, with with a small a number of men, Yorn's problem is that he he doesn't have a sufficient, you know, company to actually defend the holdfast. I think. Mm, yeah, you know, I I wasn't always know at all, but one of the one of my instigating uh, know it all things was that I once learned as a child that it wasn't in fact boiled a boiling oil. That soldiers oh, threw above really? Tell me the, the the walls of castles, but it was actually boiling water because oil really was quite expensive. Sure, and so you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to waste the oil. Well, you try you in this you if you're in a siege, right? And boiling mm-hmm. water crucially hurts quite a lot. You wouldn't want to throw oil because you're trying to cook, uh, and also oil really was quite expensive mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So actually, it was. But we have this idea of boiling oil, but actually, that's a myth. It was boiling water, and it kept the oil inside. So yeah, as a child, I went around telling all my friends when we were doing medieval studies <laughs> that, uh, that I was a, I was smart because I knew this. Surely, it must have happened once. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think probably it has happened <laughs> once. I mean, I I if if I had to choose between oil and water, I'll take water. Frankly, yeah, I'll okay. Take let me. But... All right. So I wasn't always a know it all, but. Here's what I learned living in Northern England while I was living in Northern England. Uh, in the city charter of York, because York is a, a walled city, it is still legal to shoot a Scotsman with a bow and arrow. <laughs> um, you know, it's yeah. one of these laws that's like, you know, it's 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 so, it's so antiquated that there's no reason to actually take it off the books, but... Uh, <laughs> now, now, of course, I you know you, you learn these things on these tours and whatnot. And how much of these things are really true or whatever? But um, yeah, if you were it does... a, a resident of the city of York and a Scotsman was approaching, you could you could take your bow and shoot an arrow and kill the Scotsman and and use that as your defense in court. 
Well, I will say it's, York is quite close to the Scottish border. So I mean, that that, mm-hmm. that makes sense. <laughs> I write in and correct me because I it can't be true. I I was told this as if it was true. Surely it can't be true. If you're listening to this podcast from York and you know better, please correct me. I, what, I is, would is like to like... think better of my British brothers and sisters. <laughs> this is this sounds like slander. I feel bad just repeating it out loud. I, I will say there are lots of antiquated laws like this in the UK. We have a law that you can't not wear socks 300 uh, feet from the Queen. That makes total sense to me. <laughs> there's a guy there's a guy on the bike who went we can't have, broke can't all have these dirty footed hippies in proximity <laughs> to royalty this is, this is... yeah they said yeah they instilled this in the old days of the 1960s yeah, yeah. <laughs> now this was this after the hobbits had left northern england or before the hobbits had left no, I think this is of the this is from the pre-Hobbit age. Okay, pre because yeah, of from... famously the Hobbits do not wear socks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is this is from the I forgot the names from the brand new series of the Lord the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> Rings of Power. Yeah, that's from that's from that that, that time. Har- those people, the Harfoots were uh, exactly. This is from up, the Harfoot. Exactly, up Castle Windsor with their stinky ass feet cannot mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. this happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've clearly uh, uh, moved beyond the, the content of this particular chapter, uh, but again, right. a brilliant a brilliant uh, chapter by Martin, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very reading, grateful. Reading, that, and I think I think if I had to put like five five chapters to read from this book, this would be one of them. This is the way that fantastic. he warfare is, is is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, what? So uh, you've got your Mandarin. You're gonna run run off and learn more Mandarin right now. Yes, I need to catch a cab. Luckily, cabs are cheap here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm gonna do so that. So would you uh, sign off for us? Would you say uh, goodbye to our friends in Taiwan in Mandarin for us? Yes. Actually, before I do that, I wanted to thank everyone who checked out Kin Sports. We got a lot of a uh, lot of people. Checking the sides. Did, really? Did, was there? Uh, did you get a electric bukaloo boost? We got an electric bukaloo boost. All of our data was was kind of a uh, uh, very United Statesy. Are you? Yes, fine. of course. I like that. Are you? Um, uh, are you still collecting data? Uh, I mean, we're right now. We're not traction testing. We'll come back to that. But yeah, I just wanted to, to okay. thank uh, everyone who helped out. If other people want to check it out, they're welcome to. Uh, and yeah, things are trucking along. Fantastic. Uh, and otherwise, uh, Here are the weekly highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Apple TV is releasing a new series based on Blake Crouch's novel, Dark Matter. Aaron and I are big fans of his work, so we're picking up the new show on day one. Join us this Wednesday for the preview podcast. The Shogun Limited series might be over, but that doesn't mean our Shogun coverage has to end. We've got the wrap-up podcast releasing this Tuesday, where we'll consider all your feedback and final thoughts on the series. And because we like the show so much, we decided to go all the way back to 1980 to cover the first TV adaptation of the novel. Do what you can to find a copy and join us this Thursday for the first of our four-part podcast on the 1980 Shogun miniseries. And finally, the latest first-run movie, The Fall Guy, features Emily Blunt and Ryan Gosling. 
He's a stuntman tasked with finding the star of his ex-girlfriend's movie when he suddenly goes missing. Is it a rom-com? Yes. Does that mean I'll automatically hate it? Not if the trailer lives up to its promise. Join us for the podcast on Bald Move Pulp this Thursday night. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire and Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into season two. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Just trying not to think about Christopher Cross. He's paralyzed from COVID. What? Yeah, it's, they say it's temporary and that he should experience a recovery, but right now he's, he can't walk. So Chris Cross will not make me jump? Well, this is Christopher Cross. Chris Cross I only, know, I know. Because one Chris Cross, or one, either Chris or Cross is already dead. So. That joke needed one more beat to make. To make <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Wow. So he's he number one. He he had COVID. Number two, no. he's par- I didn't know that this thing could paralyze you. A lot. There's a lot we don't know about this COVID. I was reading last night. They're saying that people that had had it and got over it are now getting it again. That's good. You'd think that you'd. Build the, I mean, I, I get, I, it makes sense because it's not like you can't get the same flu twice, right? Right. The question is, is you, right? yeah, does it, does it make you stronger or can you fight it off better? Or Well, the problem is you're, it's just the contagious factor, right? Because now you're still a carrier. Maybe we just, just see what happens. Just open up everything. I was just thinking about just ending it all. <laughs> I mean, personally or globally? I, globally. I mean, we've had a good run. It, it, I'll tell you what. It hasn't gotten better. The, the, this final season is a little, little weak, <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, look, what's the, when's the last time that we actually like, looked out and thought, yeah, I, I, humanity's clearly getting better here. Yeah, I mean, I stopped, I stopped tuning in, you know. I mean, I... <laughs> Like I'll catch an episode every once in a while, but I'm not binging humanity like I used to. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I think that we've had our run. We've 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 shown what we can do, and uh, we jumped the shark around Nixon, and now we're we're ready to close it down. I think we had some fun. I mean, the '80s was kind of like a, a weird season. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was one of those ones where we're just like, all right, I see what we kind of. The 60s was rad. I get it. So we, we thought we would do something like, hey, what if we just did cocaine instead? The, the 80s was the season where they added the new character that's a little quirky. Yeah. 
and you didn't know if it was going to work. And then it was like, oh, it's cool. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, they're going to make a whole, this character's going to be around for a while. That was the season where they, they, they took the Fonz and they tried to make him respectable. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, we're getting more Fonzie, but maybe, maybe we realized that we needed just the, the right amount of Fonzie. Not and he, Fonzie. he was always, you know, he's always a, he was always a corporate guy. He wanted to use that bathroom as his office, so he had aspirations. He right. just didn't have a place to put them. <laughs> exactly, and he didn't. I mean, he he had there was a hierarchy, and he understood it, but it just wasn't. He just he just had no letterhead. Yeah, I mean, um, I will give I will give humanity credit for at least finally installing like a good villain in the last uh, season. And they they brought in a reality TV star to do it. Well, the beauty of, of the final season of Humanity is you find out that Trump wasn't the villain. It was humanity the whole time. It was humanity the whole time. The call huh. is coming from with inside the globe. <laughs> I, watched a, I watched a great documentary. Uh, I, you know what? I, I won't say great. It, it was a documentary. <laughs> and you, you were locked inside your house, so therefore... <laughs> I watched a documentary that's free on Amazon Prime about Jupiter. It's okay. all about Jupiter. He's I didn't know if you know this, but Jupiter is the bully of the planets. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I don't see yeah. that coming. Yeah, Jupiter Jupiter caused a lot of trouble and uh it m- might have contributed to life on Earth. And now Jupiter's our bully. Jupiter attracts a lot of asteroids that, that might be a problem for us. <laughs> so it's, it. it's, like, it's like we befriended the bully, and now we're using the bully against anyone that would come at us. It's sort of the Iran-Contra affair. It's any jail movie you've ever seen. <laughs> any, every jail movie you've ever seen, you've got a conflict, and then you're, the main character kind of be, befriends one of the, the baddest asses in the prison. And uh, th- that guy's not sharp. Size matters in prison. <laughs> Man, if I could go back and redo my uh, yearbook quote. <laughs> that is a pretty good line. <laughs> Size matters in prison. <laughs> it says so much. <laughs> <laughs>